Thank you, guys. Awesome. In 1896, the world was introduced to Charles Sheldon's novel titled In His Steps. Subtitle of the book was What Would Jesus Do? In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? It was a phrase that shaped the way that Sheldon thought that we could and should live the Christian life. Not only would we look to Christ as our Savior, but we would look to Christ as an example for us in those crossroads, those moments of decision. What do I do? Well, what would Jesus do? Well, we're first introduced to that idea in his novel when we're introduced to Reverend Maxwell. Now, Reverend Maxwell is having a dialogue with a homeless man, and he's really trying to challenge this homeless man to follow Christ. Homeless man has a struggle. The struggle is... He's living in poverty. All the people around him are living in poverty. He knows that the Christian community is aware of the poverty, yet they're not really responding. So he's struggling with this idea of following Jesus because these people represent the Jesus that you're asking me to follow, right? Well, here's what the homeless man has to say. I heard some people singing at a church prayer meeting the other night. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and all my doings, all my days and all my hours. Seems pretty time-consuming, doesn't it? And then he goes on to say, And I kept wondering as I sat on the steps outside just what they meant by that seems to me that there's an awful lot of trouble in the world that somehow wouldn't be in the world if the people who were singing these types of songs lived out what it was that they were singing. I suppose I don't understand, but, but what would Jesus do? Is that what you mean by following in His steps? Is that what you're asking? What would Jesus do while... The people outside the churches, thousands of them I mean, die in tenements and walk the streets for jobs and never have a piano or a picture in their house and grow up in misery and drunkenness and sin. What would Jesus do? Now, In order to help the teenagers in her youth group be reminded of that question, what would Jesus do? Jane Tinkleberg from Michigan created the WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? Something like this, except it says WWJD. This one doesn't say that. What would Jesus do? Okay, it's something to remind us in those moments when we're trying to make a decision, what would happen? Now, is it a, is it a fad or a fashion statement? Yeah, it could be to a degree. One trip to Africa, the Red Cross was there and they'd been there for many, many months in the 90s when this bracelet was just selling like hotcakes. And so I'm talking to this gentleman and we're having a conversation about the work that he's doing there. And I say, are you a believer? And he's like, no. I'm like, okay, well, just, just wondering. Saw the what would Jesus do bracelet there and just was wondering about that. And he said, no, my family sent it to me from the States. It's a, just a fad that's going around. Okay. Now, now listen, 
Great idea. It was a great idea stemming from a great question and can have a great impact, I think, if it's meditated upon, right? So I have no qualms with the what would Jesus do bracelet or the what would Jesus do movement or the what would Jesus do idea. Not that it would matter if I did, right? Okay, so you've got an issue with the what would Jesus do bracelet. Big deal. No qualms with that, right? There's no qualms whatsoever. But I do have a little bit of concern for our understanding of what it means for Christ to be our example. I do have a little bit of concern about that. We'll talk about that today. Okay? I guess what I mean is, in that moment of greed, in that moment of selfishness, in that moment of anger, is it enough for me to stop and think, hmm, what would Jesus do right now? Well, I think it could be, but I think it hinges upon our understanding of what Jesus being an example really means. Let's talk about that as we open our Bibles to John chapter 9. Gospel of John, chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Bible reads this way, as he passed by, we're talking about Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in Him. We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning, Lord, and God, as we approach You, Father, we ask as well for sight. We ask for spiritual sight this morning to see what it would be, God, that You would want us to know. And we're confident. We have great confidence this morning 
It's not a confidence, God, that we have in ourselves. It's a confidence that makes its way back to the cross. Father, where You singled us out as You did this blind man. That time, God, when we were encompassed and surrounded and defined by darkness, just like this blind man. And You saw us. And You came to us. You called us to Yourself and You gave us sight. So God, that's where our hope begins in the fact that You called, chose us, and that there's a grand purpose in that. So we have no confidence in ourselves, but we have great confidence, Father, in who You are as we look to the cross and we see Your attention to us. As we see Your affection for us. As we see that You have a goal for Your people. A call on the lives of Your people. A purpose for the church. So God, we are most confident. We are most expectant. And we are most amazed. And this morning, by faith, we believe that Your desire is to extend to us, Your people, grace again, ongoingly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about Christ's commitment to grace. Christ's commitment to grace. And I'm going to pull two principles from that. The first, Christ's commitment to grace sees suffering. Christ's commitment to grace sees suffering. And I want to add to that, not only that it sees suffering, but Christ's commitment to grace ordains suffering. And that's a side note because I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that idea, but it's worthy of noting. Christ has a commitment to grace, and we're going to see that as we see this person suffering. Second principle is Christ's commitment to grace defines calling. Christ's commitment to grace defines calling. Who's calling? Our calling. Okay, But we need grace to fulfill that calling, and I believe that Christ is committed to giving us the grace that we need to be about His business. So as we talk about Christ's commitment to grace and we read this text, the reality is, guys, we may be confronted with a little bit of an internal dilemma. We read this passage, we see how the Savior reaches out to this individual, and we may immediately see some gaps that exist between our nature and the Savior's nature regarding how we respond to suffering. We may see a gap that exists between the Savior's view of suffering and our view of suffering. We may see a great gap as we watch Christ in relation to how we respond to the idea of suffering. And we're going to know that as we respond. It's going to tell us some things about ourselves. As we respond... How do we respond to physical suffering? 
How do we respond to physical suffering? What's our view of physical suffering? How do we respond to emotional suffering? I think that's a biggie because sometimes when someone is suffering emotionally, that can manifest itself in a very, in various ways that are seemingly very sinful. Listen, if you find a young man who is emotionally suffering, that can manifest itself in anger, outbursts, violence, abuse. You find a young woman that's suffering emotionally, that can manifest itself in a promiscuous lifestyle. How do we respond to that? Because the way that we respond to the person really is a way, I think, that we're responding to their suffering. How do we respond and what's our view of someone's emotional suffering? What's our perspective of consequential suffering? You know, when someone has made horrible choices in their lives and these choices make their way back to them and all of a sudden they're riddled and living in guilt and shame and pain and agony, what's our view of that suffering and how close is it to Christ's view of suffering? Now, what I want to do before we go any further is I want to set the record very straight as we're talking about a blind man. I want to set the record very straight that just because we're talking about a disability, a disability in and of itself is not initially or automatically connected with suffering. Okay, I want to clarify that. Now, if Christ is absent, then there is a good chance that from the perspective of the sufferer, this could be unfair. But where Christ is, there is life. And not only is there life, but there is life abundant. Fanny Crosby would be a great example of that. She was blinded at the age of six weeks old. She had inflamed eyes. A doctor over-medicated her by putting too much salve on her inflamed eyes. She went blind at six weeks old. At the age of eight years old, she wrote her first poem. Very inspiring. Do we have any eight-year-olds in the room? Raise your hand. Okay, eight years old. Now look at these three eight-year-olds. And at eight years old, this little girl wrote her first poem as a blind girl, and this is what she said. Very inspiring. Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. She went on to write 6,000 Christian hymns and live a fruitful, vibrant, real, energetic life with God. So do not immediately try to make a connection between a disability and suffering. If you were to approach Fanny Crosby and say, I'm so sorry for your suffering, she might would take her guide cane and just smack you right over the head and say, listen, there's no suffering here. 
Because for many, disability is not suffering. It is a blessing that has been given to them from God. But we have to note that even that is due to God's commitment to grace on that person's life. But, listen, and this is where we all step in, because we all must be prepared to talk about the issue and deal with the question of suffering. We all have to be prepared to tackle this issue, whether it's through the voice of another person that's struggling with suffering, or whether suffering begins to creep up in our lives. We must, we need, we better be prepared to talk about this idea of human suffering. And I would suggest for God's greater glory that we would be on guard against throwing out right biblical answers or right biblical possibilities and expecting those right answers and those right possibilities to speak on their own and bring peace on their own because those right biblical answers, beloved, they must be coupled with compassionate action on behalf of the follower of Christ. You agree with that? Has to be. So what do we do? Well, this is where Christ enters the scene and we follow His example. So let's talk about Christ's commitment to grace because Christ's commitment to grace sees suffering. You know, it's almost as if He's looking for it. Let's go back to verse chapter 9, verse 1. As He passed by, He saw a man blind from birth and His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answers, It was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the first truth that we're exposed to in this passage of Scripture is that Christ sees the suffering of the person. Note that difference because it's pretty relevant. Note that difference between the disciples and Christ. Because Christ sees what no other human being sees right now at this moment in this passage. See, the reality is the externals of this passage may move us to think that the blind man is the only one blind, but the reality is everybody in this passage, excluding the Savior Himself, every single one of them are blind. The only person that has eyes to see a need The only person that has eyes to see suffering is the person of Jesus Christ. The disciples have walked with the Savior for two and a half years. They've seen His acts and deeds of compassion. They've seen Him pour out His love for people and provide for people, but at this moment, they're blind. Now, we expect that of the Pharisees because the law is so big in their eyes that they can see absolutely nothing else. The crowd of people that are at this moment have come out of the temple, going to the temple, the crowd that's surrounding the scene at the moment, every single one of them are blind as they step over the blind man, bypass the blind man. Every single person in this this account, man, they're all blind. Now, what's that mean? Well, what's it mean for the disciples? See, the disciples are seeking to answer, and they may even consider these necessary theological questions. 
But that's the main thing that they're focused on right now. And they're willing to use this man as an object lesson for their theological debate. Now listen, those, those times and those moments, they have their place. We need debate. We need dialogue. We need to know what this sin may mean for that person and what this sin can mean for a whole new generation. We need and must have those dialogues. They have their place, but not at the expense of the sufferer at the moment. Who has sinned? Has this man sinned? Has his parents sinned? Let's have a theological discussion on the idea of sin and suffering. Let's talk about how they coincide with each other. Let's talk about which comes first. Let's talk about what types of sin can maybe even possibly warrant this type of repercussion. He's blind. Let's talk about that. What did the parents do wrong? Where does their sin lie that their son may have a same-sex attraction? Did you know that Christian John's daughter is supposedly taking addicted to drugs? Do you know that Christian John's daughter is supposedly pregnant? Let's talk about whose sin could be behind that addiction. Let's talk about whose sin could be behind that lifestyle. Who in the world and how in the world could they have possibly done such wrong? And listen, beloved, if we don't say that, we're thinking that. And if we're not thinking that now, We've thought it at some point, haven't we? And if we're not thinking it, and if we're not saying it, we're convinced that somebody else is thinking it, and that somebody else is saying it, and the suffering of the individual goes on and on and on and on as we're seeking out the answers to the questions of why. One Christian father writes this, it was a terrible day for me when I found out that my son was gay because I was dedicated to Christ and Christian values. Now, let's stop right there. What's the first thing that pops in your mind when you hear a Christian man dedicated to Christian values say, I've just been introduced to this tragic news about my son? tell you my first temptation. My first temptation is to say, dude, what did you do wrong? It's my first temptation. Man, what did you do wrong that would contribute to your son being this kind of person? Because our, our, our first line of thinking is there's no way if we're doing everything right and we're holding true to Christian values, there's no way, no possibility this could happen. It's not the case. We... We were involved in a ministry with someone. Sound, solid believers. Loved God, engaged in ministry, introduced us to the concept of homeschooling. Homeschooled all five of their children. A year and a half ago, came out of the closet and said, guys, I'm gay. Look, did this dad do some things wrong? Did the guy that I'm speaking about, did he do some things wrong? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely they did some things wrong. We all do things wrong. Were they perfect parents? Absolutely not. Did they have sound values in their home? Yes. What happened? Well, I, I don't know. I can't tell you the details. But do we say that this guy 
is not in need of grace? Do we say that maybe even if he did something wrong, that he's not suffering? Or do we say that maybe because he did some things wrong, his suffering isn't valid? Let me back up. It was a terrible day for me when I found out that my son was gay because I was dedicated to Christ and Christian values. I wondered if I was somehow getting punished for something I had done wrong. I Man, I, I hear that, brother. I asked myself that question a thousand times. Some of my church family tried to analyze me. One asked, what do you feel that you did wrong that contributed to your son being this way? Maybe you didn't make him do enough push-ups. Then he goes on to say, being analyzed most often feels like abandonment. I want to suggest this morning that we're scared of vulnerability. And one of the reasons that we're scared of vulnerability is because we're scared of people. And if we're honest, some of the greatest hurts that we've had in our Christian journey has been from Christian people. Right? Just the fact of the matter. One, two, two of the greatest hurts that we've had in our lives have been from Christian people in a church environment, in a church family. One couple, we confided in them many years ago, some things that were going in our, going on in our marriage, some struggles we were having, and it wasn't long after that that we were literally shunned, pushed away, and told in indirect ways, you don't have enough value to be a part of what we're doing here. There was another time when I sat down, shared my heart with a gentleman who was my pastor at that time, said, listen, just want you to know who I am. Here's some things that have happened in my life. Here's some things that have happened in the lives of, of my children. Here's some struggles we've been going through. And man, just want you to know who I am. And pretty much the response to that was, you're probably not going to have a place in ministry because these things have kind of been a part of your life at different times. Some of the greatest hurts that we have can come from Christian people. Now, this is how I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you to take the risk of being real in the midst of your brothers and sisters that are here today. And I want to challenge you and encourage you to take the risk because the flip side of that coin is, yeah, we've been hurt the most by Christian people, but, man, we have been healed the most by Christian people too. We have been healed the most. We have been loved the most. We have been cared for the most. We're, we're, right now, my wife and I, we're spending time with a friend and we're talking about our marriage and we're talking about our successes. We're talking about our failures. We're talking about where we blow it. We're talking about what we do good. We're talking about what we do wrong. We're talking about sin. We're talking about failure. We're talking about all of these things. And I'm going to tell you right now, the grace and the care and the love is overwhelming. Overwhelming. A couple years ago, I went through a um, oh my gosh, a uh, internship, so to speak, at Daniel's Bible Church. And I sat under Don Flegger for a year. Very first thing I did, Don, let me tell you a little bit about myself. 
I want to tell you about my history. I want to tell you about my kids. I want to tell you about where I've been. I want to tell you about my failures. And the grace and the love and the care and the prayers and the tears, so overwhelming. Now listen, if you want to talk about feeling like you're valuable to Christ, then have an encounter where you feel valuable from another Christian. Because another Christian can make you feel so valuable or another Christian can make you feel so defeated. Now, I don't know what people are going to think about me. I don't know what people are going to think about me. I don't know what people are going to think about my child. I don't know what people are going to think about my marriage. I don't know what people are going to think about my addiction. Listen, if they are recipients of grace, they're going to love you. If they're recipients of grace and they know what it was like to be blind, they're going to say, you're human, I'm with you, I'm going to walk in this and through this with you. Doesn't mean they won't speak truth. It doesn't mean they'll be passive over sin, but they will not shun you. They will not do it if they're recipients of grace. Why is it important that we know this? Well, because it's important that we see suffering. It's important that we're looking for suffering. The disciples ask a very specific question. Why was this man born blind? We have specific questions too. And we know people that have specific questions too. Why was this man born blind? Why was this person born deaf? Why was my child born with Down syndrome? Why am I going through this marital hardship? Why am I having this ongoing sickness in my life? And just as specific as the Savior's answer was to the disciples, listen, beloved, His answer is as specific to us today. Your suffering, whatever it may be, it is a means by which God's work is displayed in your life through Him, for His glory, for your good purposes. That's why you're suffering. That's why they're suffering. Because God's at work. Now, Christ's commitment to grace doesn't just see your suffering, does it? The reality is sometimes it ordains our suffering. Jerry Bridges says, that which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning. Our suffering has purpose. Our suffering is in God's eternal plan. And He brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for His glory and our good. That's the purpose of suffering, if we want to sum it up real quick. Now, let's go back to the blind man. What did God say to Moses when Moses was complaining? I can't do this. God said, listen, who has made man's mouth? Who has made man mute? Who has made man deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? We can't stop there. Who's made man cancerous? Who's made man this or that? God has done that. Listen, this blind man is in particularly, he is suffering greatly right now at this moment. 
suffering greatly. He's been blind from birth. He has never once in his life seen the light of day. He has never once seen the vastness of a star-filled sky. He's never seen a child smile. He's heard laughs on occasions. He's never seen a child smile. doesn't know when he should go to sleep or when he should be awake other than maybe the, the volume of the noise taking place around him. So he kind of dozes through life. And even the fact that he's near the temple is probably because people are going in, coming out, and he's hopeful that someone will feel generous and drop him off some pocket chains. And he is surrounded by consumed by, overtaken by darkness that has consumed him from his very birth and God has ordained it all. God has ordained it all for God's glory and for His good so that this man can and will believe. And the sad reality is, listen, nobody cares. Nobody knows. Nobody sees. Nobody has eyes to see that, number one, there is a man that's suffering, and equally important, nobody has eyes to see that God may be very well involved and in the middle of this suffering right this very moment. No one knows except Christ. So are we saying that we should be looking for suffering? My answer is yes, Absolutely. We need to be looking for suffering that could be taking place in the life of a sinner because it could be in that moment of suffering that God is using that suffering to break that sinner's heart and allow them to see where their greatest need lies in the very person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 20 verse 31 tells us the whole purpose of this book These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in His name. And one of the ways that God leads people to belief, according to what we're reading, is suffering. Yes, look for suffering that could be taking place in the life of a sinner because in the middle of that suffering, God could be very much at work. Now, if you're here, and you're a Christian, and you're experiencing suffering on any type of level, physical, emotional, consequential, disciplinary, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not a possibility that God is at work. God is at work. If you are here, and you are a Christian, and you are suffering, God is at work in your life for your good, and for His glory. J.C. Ryle states, Suffering is one of God's best medicines. By it, He often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way. By it, He often draws souls away from sin and the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Health is a great blessing but sanctified disease is much greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Let us beware of murmuring in a time of trouble. Let us settle it right now firmly in our minds 
that there is a meaning, a needs be, and a message from God in every form of sorrow that falls upon us. There are no lessons so useful as those learned in the school of sorrow. There's no commentary that opens up the Bible so much as sickness and sorrow. The resurrection morning will prove that many of the losses of God's people were in reality eternal gains. Thousands at the last day will testify with David, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Can I talk to you briefly about one of the greatest measures of God's grace as we look at this passage see what it can mean to us? One of the greatest measures of God's grace is that He uses us in this process. That is so amazing. That is so huge that God uses us. So let's briefly talk about Christ's commitment to grace that defines our calling. Look in verse 4 with me. Jesus says, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So let's recap a moment here. Jesus is with the disciples. They've been with Him for two and a half years now. They've seen His acts of compassion and kindness. They're blowing it right now. They're not seeing. They're missing it completely, just like everybody else. And yet Jesus says to them, we must work. Now it sounds like that there is a lot of hope woven into this statement that Jesus is making in the midst of the fact that you've got these guys who are blowing it completely. Just not seeing right now. This might be a good point for us to stop and talk about and attempt to define the difference between a human example and Christ is our example. Okay? Because we're going to know where does the hope lie for these men in relation to Jesus saying, we've got work to do, guys. Where does the hope lie for us? As Jesus says, We must be about this work, the work of belief in the lives of other people. We must be about this. Where does our hope lie? What is the solution to our blindness? I think Jesus is our example. But let's define what an example is. Because if we were to say that someone is an example, that would mean that someone is fit to be imitated. Now, it doesn't mean that they will be imitated. It means that they could be imitated. Now, probably, whether or not you agree with the politics of Barack Obama, for example, he could be an example to the African-American community that a person of color can accomplish great things in this nation. Agree with his politics and his polity or not, That's he could be an example to that group of people. Wolfgang Mozart, man. What an example that he can be to not just people, but young people who are pursuing the musical field. That at a young age, man, you can accomplish so many things. Now that doesn't mean that my daughters in their pursuit of learning to play the piano, it doesn't mean that they're going to follow his example, but it is there for them to follow if they chose to. 
The example of Christ is a little bit different, and I want to begin to explain to you how. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, if you want to turn there, you can. But listen to what he said, because he's going to talk about Christ as an example for us. Because isn't it so easy to say, okay, you know, Christ loved suffering people, so just follow his example and love suffering people. And it kind of becomes a list that we want to try to accomplish. I don't think that that's what Peter's going to say to us in relation to Christ being an example for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Peter does not say, Christ also suffered, comma, leaving you an example, period. He said, Christ also suffered for you, comma, leaving you an example to follow. In His steps, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Now verse 24 is important too. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. The context is suffering, but Peter makes a a very valid point that He's an example for us. The word example comes from a Greek word and it means underwriting. The picture is a blank piece of paper put on top of something that you want copied and then you begin to trace or rewrite what is under the blank piece of paper. So immediately we have a suggestion that Jesus' life is not designed as something that we look to from afar. He's suggesting that it is a blueprint, a life to be followed line by line, feature by feature, detail by detail, and circumstance by circumstance. This is where Jesus, as an example, begins to break away from human examples. You see, President Obama, he pursued something for himself. And in pursuit of something for himself, there could be an overflow that could serve as an example to other people who are looking from afar saying, well, maybe I can do that too. Well, this is the difference. Jesus Christ did something for you specifically. Jesus Christ did not do something for Himself. He did something for you specifically. And the implications of that are huge. The implications of that are huge because it reveals and highlights His specific love for you. His specific commitment to you. He bore our sins on the cross so that we would be empowered to be confrontational with sin so that sin would no longer rule over us and keep us enslaved and we would not be ruled by it. Now, we've got to rest in that moment for a brief second here. Listen, the Trinity loves you. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are committed to you. They are committed to fashion you. 
They are committed to mold you. They are committed to further you into the image of the person of Jesus Christ. So when Christ is an example, and as an example, we don't look from afar and say, well, maybe I could do that too. No, He specifically is making it clear that He has a commitment to you. A commitment for your salvation, a commitment for your sanctification, and what He started in you. Listen, if you're a born-again believer, Jesus Christ will continue that process. He will. We want to say, what's the formula? What's the formula that I can transition from person A to person B, skip all the sin stuff, it just doesn't work that way. It's just not going to work that way. Let me tell you why this is relevant, and then I'm going to tell you why it doesn't work that way. It's relevant because He's calling us to work. He's calling us to be engaged with His person. He's calling us to be involved in His business. Verse 4, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. That's really a reference to His life. Because night is coming, cross is near, when no one can work. Disciples have been following Christ. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go back and, and tell you why we just don't jump from person A to person B. Disciples have followed Christ for two and a half years. They didn't get it. Man, I've been following Christ for almost 20 years. Guys, there's times I just don't get it. I don't get it still. Probably, for certain, there's a lot of times that you just don't get it. We blow it. We bypass those who are suffering. We don't follow Christ the way we should. There are times, guys, that we just blow it. Now, I think it's important to highlight what the disciples are doing right. Because that's our first issue of work. The thing that the disciples are doing right is they're following Christ. That's what they're doing right. It's the main thing they're doing right. And at this stage of their life, it's the only thing Christ is requiring of them. I didn't notice that Christ rebuked them and said, guys, grow up. It was, an, it was an opportunity that they missed. And Christ didn't scold them. He didn't rebuke them. He said, guys, let me use this as a teaching opportunity in your life. It's kind of what He does with us, isn't it? As we go along this journey with Christ, and we blow it, and we mess up, we make... Because look, Jesus said to the disciples when He first called them, follow Me, prerequisite number one. And the promise to that is, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Follow Me, and I'm going to do something. And there's going to be a process in between, and the reality is, process can look a little messy sometimes, can look a little sloppy. We can look at ourselves and say, who am I really? But, but there's a process involved. Two and a half years, they've blown it not been following Christ the way that they should. They've made dumb statements. They've asked wrong questions. But every dumb statement and every wrong question is an opportunity to learn from the dumb statement and the wrong question and move on to the next dumb statement and the next wrong question. And then learn from that bad statement and that wrong question and then move on to the next bad statement and the next wrong question and then learn from that and then move on to the next. It's a process. 
Discipleship is a process. Who you are right now, if you're a believer in Christ, you will not be the same person tomorrow or the, or the next week or the next year. There will be growth. Not because of anything you do, but because Christ is committed to you. He's committed to your good and He's committed to your glory. They don't get it. But you know what? In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to be walking to the temple. There's going to be a blind man begging, crying out, and they're going to fix their gaze upon him and they're going to say, you look at me, I don't have money, I don't have gold or silver, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And let me give you what Christ has for you. They miss it now, but they're going to learn and they're going to get it later. And they're going to do something dumb the next week. They just will. Discipleship's a process. We need to know that. Please be relieved from a burden that says you better be this person right now. You'll be this person. You're learning, man. We're learning from, from stupid stuff that we do. We're learning in our suffering and we're learning in our sin. That's God's commitment to grace. We had an issue. Let me tell you how this works. We had an issue in our family a few years back. Someone very dear to us was involved in drugs. Now, I'm the kind of guy I would think that we're the kind of people and we would frown on that and we would say, man, you know, that's just bad, it's a bad deal, bad news. What are these people doing? But it was something that became intimate to us, okay? And the result of being involved in that moment, in that situation, the consequence of that was suffering, okay? We suffered. We suffered emotionally. We probably suffered physically. <laughs> there, there were some different forms of suffering that took place in our lives, but we suffered, But God used that suffering for something great. About a year ago, we were told about a woman that we used to go to church with. Loves God, I know that about her. Loves the Lord. Did she make mistakes? Yep, sure did. Her son got addicted to drugs. She was suffering. Found out about it. She wasn't talking about it to anyone in her church because fear. Fear of being judged. Fear of being told, hey, you're a bad parent. So we we went to her. More specifically, my wife went to her. My wife ran to her. Do you know what she did, the lady? She ran back. I mean, she came to my wife at full speed, and you talk about grateful and receptive and loving and please, please help me through this. Woman, suffering, man. Suffering. No greater suffering probably than watching a child kind of take a downward spiral. And she's suffering and she's suffering alone. And people are kind of stepping over and walking by and going about the busyness of life. See, we suffer, but those moments aren't in vain. When we suffer, we suffer so that we can step into another person's life and aid them through their suffering. Look, I'm telling you right now, that's what the Christian church is. If we ever needed diversity in the church, that's the reason why. So that we're exposed to different people and different lives and different thoughts and so that we can all learn and we can all grow and we can all work toward a higher standard and a higher level of godliness. I want to ask you to do something this morning. First, I want to ask you to bow your heads.
I want to ask you just to be prayerful right now. Anything in your life right now that is burdensome, it's weighing you down. You want to talk about it? You want to confide in your brothers and sisters? There's a little part of you that's scared. There's a little part of you that thinks, man, this is a risk. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a risk. It was a risk for me to go back and say, Don, let me dump my garbage out on this table in front of you. It was a risk to talk to our friend about our marriage. Yes, it is a risk. But give give the people of God in this place an opportunity to be gracious and extend grace. Because if you're here and you're suffering in some way, old wounds, recent wounds, problems, children, problems in marriage, whatever the case may be, give the people of God in this room the opportunity to extend you grace and love you and minister to you and help you. Think about that. Pray about that. And I'm going to close us in prayer. Father, we come to You, God, and we we never want to be a people, God, that are passive about sin. We never want to be a people, God, that justify sinful behavior. And I think one of the ways, God, that we can do that is by being the body and talking about the issues, the real issues of our lives with other people. So we learn from the disciples of what to do. We follow you. We follow you now. We follow you at the moment. And we learn what not to do. We don't follow you in judgmental way. So help us, God, to take a day at a time and a step at a time, a moment at a time of just following you learning from You detail by detail, line by line, mark by mark, circumstance by circumstance. And God, let that be our first and right step, that we're committed to be followers of You, followers of Your person. And I believe that the same principle is real to us. You will make us fishers of men. You will do something in us that we can never do if we had a thousand years, that we could never be if we had many lifetimes to try to attain. You're going to do this. So, God, we please never allow us to be passive about sin, but free us from wallowing in it. Enable us to learn from it. Remind us that it is even our sin is a method by which you're 
faithful and You're committed to grace in our lives and committed to conforming us to the image of Your Son. So may we be learners. God, make that heavier on our hearts, ever before our minds. That as much as You're committed to grace, God, we're committed to learning in the midst of Your grace, from Your grace. Pray this, ask that you would do this in Jesus' name.